Welcome to the Snow Brains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge on to you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains, and I once knocked myself out and broke my face in three places at Alta, Utah in 2011 after landing a front flip in my own bomb hole and slamming my face into my knee. The Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area, home of the highest average annual snowfall in the Rocky Mountains. My guest today is Randall Osteruber. Randall is ridiculously well-certified and qualified to do just about anything in the mountains, and his accolades are just too extensive to list all here. So I'm just going to go with the highlights. Randall has been a search and rescue leader for Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue for the past 39 years. He has a degree in physics and mathematics from the University of Nevada, Reno, and a master's in hydrology and fluvial geomorphology from UC Berkeley. Go Bears! He's been an avalanche forecaster for Washu County, Nevada for the past 22 years. He was the lead scientist at UC Berkeley's Central Sierra Snow Lab for 24 years. He's been the owner and lead guide of Donner Summit Avalanche Seminars for the past 24 years. He's a snow safety consultant to Caltrans, Liberty Utilities, Vale Resorts, and the North Tahoe Fire Protection District, and he's been doing that for 16 years. He's been a technical advisor to the Sierra Avalanche Center for the past 15 years. He's been ski mountaineering all over the world for the past 40 years. He's even a winter survival instructor. It's insane. Uh, He's the author of more than 50 technical papers on snow, snow hydrology, snow zone climatology, and snow avalanche dynamics. Basically, no one has seen more in the mountains than Randall, and his stories from search and rescue in the depths of winter are simply astonishing. Hello, Randall. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. How are you, man? Good. Thanks for having me, Miles. Really, really stoked to have you. You know, we took that Avalanche 3 course together in 2007 in June Lake. Since then, you've been somebody I've leaned on for amazing data and information in the snow science world. Uh, When did you ski last? I skied a couple days ago up in the Mount Rose area. Nice. How was it? It was okay. You know, the coverage up there is just enough. Um, There's some supportable crust of the south-facing snow. Uh, some unsupportable crusts everywhere else. But uh, yeah, always good to be out there. All right, man. Well, let's jump into it. Randall, your life has been ridiculous. You're a ski mountaineer. You're a search and rescue leader. You're a winter survival instructor, a snow scientist, an avalanche forecaster, an avalanche educator. And I can't imagine anyone being more involved in the avalanche and snow sports world than you are. So my goal today is to break down some of these impressive facets of your life so that we can pass along some of your most interesting information and experiences that you've encountered so far. You ready? Yeah. Cool. So what's your biggest accomplishment in skiing? You know, I guess just skiing for 45 winters now. How do you define yourself? I sometimes I think of myself as a designer, uh, just because I like to uh, look at things from 
from different angles, but I have a ton of interests, you know, not only skiing, but academia and mathematics, paying attention to everything that goes on around me the best I can. You know, I try to be a really good observer. You know, I mean, it's a difficult question how you define yourself. We talked once before about you defined yourself a bit as an objective observer, and I think that's pretty powerful considering what you do. It seems more and more important these days. As I get older, I really try to have a good sense of myself and a sense of my surroundings and try to uh, second guess things that I take for granted. I'm always striving to be, you know, at least at some level, a, a critical thinker. What was your most challenging search and rescue mission? Most of the missions have been physically pretty challenging, but I'd say mentally the most challenging are the ones that involve fatalities, you know, which are, are not great, of course. And they've been the minority of my activity in the backcountry on search and rescues. But those have been for sure the most challenging, you know, to have to deal with that. And usually our rescues are really fun and exciting and funny and high paced and have a great outcome. But the, uh, the fatalities are very different. I'm sure they are. And I just imagine that you guys have a camaraderie akin to what they have in the military, which must be really powerful. What's your favorite place to ski? I guess I would say somewhere I haven't been before. You know, it's one of my favorite things to do <laughs> in the backcountry and on skis is just to explore new terrain, yes. places I haven't been before. What scares you the most in the mountains? One thing that scares me is operating an environment in the backcountry with a lot of other skiers around you, especially above you, you know, and I tend to shy away mm. from those places as I get older. You know, a lot of the physical aspects of the snowpack and the environment, I at least have a basic understanding of, but um, the wild cards are the other people for sure. I agree. Having other people out there and you don't know what they're going to do can be terrifying. Right. What do you love most in the mountains? The view, I would say. It's one thing to, to <laughs> climb a mountain. When you when you get on a summit with low visibility, it's a bit of a disappointment because to me, you know, uh, being able to see from high vantage points, of course, there's many great things of, you know, experiencing the weather and experiencing these great ascents and descents with close friends, you know, and building camaraderie. I agree with you on the view, though. That used to be my answer. People, why do you climb mountains? Like, gosh, just to see the other side, just to see what's over the hill. I love that. What's the funniest accident you've had in the mountains? Funniest accident? You know, several years ago, we were on a rescue tracking this guy. He had about an eight-hour head start on us, and it was in a big storm. And all night long, we were pretty convinced that we were in a particular drainage, and it turns out we were not. We made a, you know, like a 15-mile navigation error. And when we finally figured it out, you know, it all worked out. But that was an eye-opener. Definitely. It's amazing. I've definitely done full circles in a snowstorm and found footprints and thought, whoa, there's somebody else out here. Holy. And then I <laughs> yeah. realized, oh, wait, that's my footprints. That's, that's not good. And I was leading people. It was bad. Yeah, um, we've done the same thing. You run across <laughs> fresh ski tracks and, and sure enough, they're your own. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember the, the astonishment. Whoa, I can't, I can't believe there's somebody out here in this. It's amazing. But no, it was me. How many friends have you lost in the mountains? Oh, probably about a half dozen or so at this point. And that's, unfortunately, that's one, one effect of getting older is, uh, you know, when mm -hmm. you're in your 20s and 30s, you go to a lot of weddings. And when you're in your 50s and 60s, you tend to go to more memorial services. <laughs> yeah, I, I think about, you know, a half dozen or so. Yeah, it's relatively common with the people I talk to. It's usually between 10 and 30, to be honest. It's crazy. How many avalanches have you been in personally? Uh, I've been in several very small ones, never have been completely buried, though I have been right next to some very large surprising avalanches 
Uh, those are the ones that are close call and kind of scary and just, you know, uh, survived out of pure luck. Uh, so, you know, that was probably 20 years ago. And I think I operate completely differently in the, in the back country today relative to snow safety for sure. I think pure luck goes a long way in the mountains, especially when you're younger. Yeah. Um, you've been on ski expeditions all over the world. Which was your favorite ski expedition? We spent a lot of years skiing remote mountain ranges in Nevada. Um, oh, wow. And uh, just had a blast, you know, really uh, unusual terrain, very cold. Yes. Um, and, and those particular years were some great snowfall years um, for a lot of ranges out there. And if you look at any map of the lower 48, by far the biggest chunk of wilderness in the country is, is Nevada and has some pretty spectacular terrain. It's recorded, at least in books that I've seen, as the most mountainous state in the lower 48, maybe in, in all of the U.S. states. Yeah, there's something like, you know, 250 named mountain ranges in the, in the state, and, and a bunch of them, especially in the north part of the state, get pretty significant snowfall. Well, I won't make you divulge any secrets, but uh, I've personally been to the Ruby Mountains, which is one of the very common, well-known ones, and, and I would agree that the skiing is ridiculously good out there. Yeah, yeah. Where would you not go back to? <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> you know, I've certainly spent a lot of time skiing on Castle Peak on Donner Summit. Not that I wouldn't go back there, but it's such a popular <laughs> spot. It's, it's one spot. of my lowest priority at, at this point, I would say. I agree. Anything in your backyard when you do it too much can, can get cumbersome. What challenges you most intellectually on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, a lot of it has to do with politics lately, understanding <laughs> why people believe the things they believe. And I don't just completely discount them by any means, but I really try to challenge myself and, and take their view and try to figure out why they believe what they believe and maybe give me a little clearer understanding of you know, the big split that's going on in the country. I agree. I've really put some energy mentally into trying to figure out you know, why people are positioned the way they are. And it's interesting how it kind of helps me come back to the center and find how we are all pretty much the same. What's your favorite book? Oh, you know, uh, by far my favorite author is, is John McPhee. Um, I've, mm. I'm sure I've read everything he's ever written, including magazine articles. And many, wow. many of his books I've read multiple times. And they're all, uh, they're all fantastic. You know? And what's his genre? What, what, give us an example. He writes about, uh, I guess I would say, science and nature topics, but also writes about the people who are involved in those topics. So he will uh, write a book about uh, Western geology, but it's really centered on, um, you know, the geologist from Wyoming that sleeps outside 200 nights a year. And, uh, you know, it's just his life. So McPhee's a, a great intellectual, great uh, sense of humor, great uh, adventurer, really enjoy his writing. Could you pick out one book for us to, uh, to get started? Well, you know, uh, here in California, I would say that if you're a resident of California, everybody that lives in California should read a book called Assembling California, um, which oh. is about the geology of, of the state. And, you know, we're famous for a lot of earthquakes and faults, and, but there's a lot more than that. And I'd, that'd be a great one to recommend. Now we'll get into some more in-depth questions about your life. So I want to start off just making it clear that you are a ski mountaineer. You're an avid ski mountaineer uh, with impressive descents all over the world. Where have you been ski mountaineering? What were some of the fun exotic trips? 
Some of the best ski mountains I've found are the volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they tend to have a lot of vertical. They tend to have snow on every exposure. Um, they tend to have huge um, fall lines. They tend to have relatively complex terrain, especially ones that are heavily glaciated. And they tend to have awesome views from the summits. Um, I've been on a few of those volcanoes on foot, not skiing. And I'll tell you, it's always been impressed upon me how they're not great mountains to climb, but they're great mountains to ski. You know, a lot of the rock is pretty crumbly. So, you know, um, I haven't skied them all, but I've skied a bunch. And they're some of the highlights in my career for sure. And as well as, you know, exploring um, various parts of the backyard, the backyard being the Sierra Nevada and the Sierra Nevada goes far beyond Lake Tahoe. One of the jobs I have, we do snow surveys in the upper watersheds of the Sequoia Kings Canyon Park. And, you know, we do these long tours and it's very rare that we see any other ski tracks back there for, you know, a week and 10 days. And so I think the bulk of the Sierra Nevada is still pretty much untouched um, midwinter because it's all national parks and wilderness areas. There's no roads and access is relatively difficult. Um, it remains a, a pretty wild range. And I give a lot of credit to to wild places. Those are probably my favorite, you know. Those are some great recommendations. Yeah, the Eastern Sierra, that just bends my mind every time I go out there. And if you had to pick one volcano that, that might be your favorite, what, which one would you pick? I mean, Shasta's as big as any of them, really. And it's relatively close to home, uh, though far enough to be exotic. And uh, some of the biggest ascents as far as total vertical have been on Shasta. Um, so it's it's pretty easy to get, you know, 8,000 feet in, on a spring tour up there. Shasta is a beast and it's so fun. So yeah, if, if you're comfortable at that level of backcountry skiing, that is something that I would recommend with you. I recently heard you say a, a quote that I loved that hit me that you just said, I think backcountry skiing is the most awesome sport. What makes you say that? It's uh, the winter environment, which I particularly am fond of. I like warm weather, but I think I do better in cold environments than hot environments. And, you know, to climb a mountain with a tight group of friends and ski it is an incredible thrill. Not only the skiing, but sharing that environment with your, with your partners. You, like most of us, we've been involved in a lot of different sports, but I would say of all the sports I do, um, backcountry skiing is by far my favorite. You know, and snow is such a varied medium and, you know, the environment could be everything from the harshest you could imagine to having these really gentle, sunny days at high altitude in a snowy environment is, is of course, pretty spectacular. It is spectacular to be out in just in that winter environment. And speaking of that winter environment, it can be so, you know, the yin and yang of it is it can be so great, all the things that you just mentioned, but it also can be deadly. And so you are a winter survival instructor as well, which I never knew that about you. That's very cool. I I need a lot more training in that area. What quick tips could you give our audience about how to survive in the winter in the backcountry? Well, you know, a lot of things you're, you and people that listen to your podcast are probably familiar with just these basics, you know, uh, dressing properly, having some sense of route finding and navigation, um, and certainly not underestimating uh, what the environment can feed your way, especially when it comes to cold temperatures and wet. Um, but I, I would say one of the strongest thing is to have a really positive attitude yes. and that, you know, it's not, if I can survive some 
unforeseen circumstances, but how I can survive this. And, you know, a lot of this is thinking ahead and planning ahead. And I must say that, you know, so much of it comes from experience. And the only way you can get experience is to go out there and do stuff. And when we do stuff, we make mistakes. Hopefully we survive those mistakes. We come back, we're smarter um, for the next time going out. Agreed. Yeah. That, that foresight is everything when moving into the backcountry. Part of the foresight is what to have in your backpack, right? Um, so what are some of the most important survival tools to have in your backpack when going out into the backcountry in winter? Well, it's interesting, you know, being on a rescue team for so many years and all the people we found lost and injured out there. Um, one thing that struck me early on is the people that were cigarette smokers always did really well because they always <laughs> had a lighter in their pocket. Yes. And, you know, if you're skiing in a ski area or out for a quick tour and maybe you have a small pack or no pack at all, if you're not a smoker, you probably don't carry a lighter with you. Um, right. And that's something, you know, I never really thought about, but it's obvious. And of course, you know, having correct, proper clothing to protect you from the weather. Today, you know, having some kind of communication device, a phone, you know, those were not available through, you know, the 80s and 90s when I joined the, the rescue team. You know, having a small bivy sack, having something uh, waterproof to sit on, you know, so you don't have to sit on the snow, little things like that. I love that you mentioned the lighter and the cigarette smoker. That's so interesting to me. And I hope that's something that's driven home to our audience. I, I keep two lighters in my backpack just in case one acts up. I haven't ended up in that situation, but I have had friends that have spent a whole night out in Japan, in near Hakuba, Japan, which is about five hours east of Tokyo. And they had a lighter and they made a fire and they were okay. Um, and I think that the fire was a big part of that. Um, yeah. Like you, I, I carry multiple lighters. I also <laughs> carry multiple headlamps. You know, I just cannot ah, have yes. enough headlamps, especially, you know, going out so this light time now. of year. This time of year, yeah. I mean, you've got these long nights, these 14, 15 hour dark nights. Um, so I always, you know, carry a slug of extra batteries, headlamps, multiple headlamps, and uh, definitely some way to start a fire. Bring multiple lighters, bring multiple headlamps, have those extra batteries. You've encountered people in really distressed situations, injured, lost, you know, fatalities. What do you think makes the difference between those who survive when stranded in the backcountry in winter and those who don't survive? First and foremost, there's no doubt about it that it's clothing. When snowboarding really started to become popular in the late 80s and early 90s, there was this whole new wave of people that were riding at the ski areas on a snowboard and they were dressed primarily in cotton sweatshirts and cotton sweatpants and we had many many searches over the years for people dressed like that and the ability to survive a stormy night in you know uh, Gore-Tex pants and jackets versus um, a, a cotton sweatshirt is night and day we've had a couple searches where two friends have gotten lost one has been dressed relatively well the other one has been dressed poorly and the guy who dressed poorly does not do well um, at all. So I would say that's the big difference. That's a huge take home. And this is not totally relevant to this scenario, but it can be in the spring. In a lot of the wilderness first aid classes I've taken, they talk about hypothermia more often happens to people at around, you know, between 32 degrees and 50 degrees Fahrenheit than below 32 degrees. Because it seems like below 32 degrees, people think, oh, what? It, damn, it's cold out. Let's wear a bunch of clothes. But in that between zone, between freezing and 50 degrees, people might not dress as well. And that did seem to be a huge difference maker with people getting hypothermia. 
Yeah, I would agree. You know, some of the coldest days I've ever spent have been on a bicycle, you know, underprepared. <laughs> yeah. And when you're on a bike and you're on the downhill, you oh. know, you're just in the wind and in these, right, like, just like you said, these 40 degree rainstorms um, that, you know, you can Worst. hardly move your fingers afterwards. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot of stuff you want to carry in your pack and be prepared in the winter. And, you know, one good thing about skiing with solid partners is they always carry slightly different stuff than you do. So um, if, you know, there is a, an emergency or some kind of problem, your number of resources are generally greater than what either one of you would carry. So it's really cool to, to you know, kind of talk with your partners and know over the years all the stuff that they carry versus what you do. So you have, you have a number of resources if something goes wrong. Absolutely. So a couple of lighters couple of headlamps, some extra batteries, and a strong partner. That is fantastic. And that also helps flow into my next round of questions here about your experience with Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue. So you've been a leader on over 200 search and rescue missions in your life, which is incredible, obviously. So what is the most common type of rescue you're involved in in the Lake Tahoe area? What's really common for our rescue team up here is skiers that stray off the backside of Sugar Bowl, Alpine Meadows, mm. um, Squaw Valley, either knowingly or unknowingly. And all three of those ski areas and several others, you know, basically back up to, to vast wilderness areas. So, you know, typically it's, it's six o'clock on a stormy evening and the sheriff gets a call from a family member that says, hey, you know, my husband and I were skiing at Squaw Valley today. He never showed up at the end of the day. The sheriff does a preliminary check to make sure it's legitimate. You know, the guy's not hanging out at the bar or with a girlfriend. Right. And then he calls us. And <laughs> so typically eight to 10 skiers show up. Um, we ski in pairs, get a snowcat ride or a lift ride to the crest of the ski area and spread out and uh, usually, you know, drop several pitches below the crest to get out of the wind. And we start to look for tracks and knowing, you know, whether the person's on a snowboard or para-alpine skis or whether there's two people, et cetera. And you guys um, will go out in a storm as well as good weather, correct? Yeah. By far, the majority of our searches have been at night and often during stormy weather. Whoa. So that's a pretty common uh, scenario. And, you know, I, I think at this point, it's it's been on the order of several hundred people that we found that have strayed from the ski areas. Really? Wow. You know, one thing I've heard frequently, because this, this shows up in the news, it's almost always that scenario you're talking about. They've gone off the backside, which for our listeners is the west facing side, the west side of the Sierra Nevada crest. And I think what happens to a lot of people is they hear these anecdotes of, oh, if you get lost, follow water and water leads to civilization. And that does not work in the Sierra Nevada, because if you do that in Lake Tahoe, I think it's 60 miles through nasty river canyons before you get to quote unquote civilization. Is, is that correct? Yeah, you're right. You know, both Alpine Meadows and Squaw Valley back up to uh, the Five Lakes Creek drainage. And if you've ever skied off the back of the ski areas um, and down into Five Lakes Creek, the lower you ski along that channel, the rougher the terrain gets. Right. And like you said, it is it is literally 60 miles until Forest Hill. <laughs> um, so some people, you know, especially young, fit men, they just keep going and they go and go right. and go. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they have four to six to eight hour head start on us. But I'll tell you, in the history of the team, there's only been a single individual that we've never located. And it still remains a bit of a mystery. So we have a pretty high success rate. 
That's remarkable. Wow. Only one. And, and you've been, you've been doing this since uh, 1998. Is that right? I joined the team in 1981. 81. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about 40 years of, of rescuing people and only one that you never found. That's uh, you guys deserve a pat on the back for that. That's very impressive. What might've been your most challenging rescue? Do you have a specific example you might be able to share? Well, there's been so many and they're all different. You know, many years ago, we had this really uh, wet snowstorm, dropped a couple feet of super wet snow, uh, high winds. A 911 call came through the fire department in the morning that these two guys the night before had hiked up a shoulder of Castle Peak to go riding in the, in the moonlight. It was a full moon that night. They nice. got caught in the storm. One guy woke up in the morning. He was dressed in a one-piece suit, uh, dressed pretty well. Um, the other guy was unconscious and unresponsive. He called 911, said his friend needed help, and he skied out of there. It's uh, kind of a long story, but it took us several hours to find this guy. Um, and when we did, he was way up near the top of the peak. He was almost naked. He had very little clothes on. Whoa. He was frozen to the snow surface, rime all over him. You know, right when we skied up, I thought for sure this guy was dead, but he had a pulse. He had slight respiration. We carry this rigid rescue sled that breaks into four different pieces. Um, Both halves of the sled go together with these beefy clevis pins and the handles go together in two parts. So we assembled the sled. This is all up in this raging wind and snowstorm. Got a couple sleeping bags inside each other, inside a bivy sack, and the count of three, we grabbed this guy, peeled him off the snow, got him into the sled, and uh, went high speed back towards I-80 where Truckee Fire Ambulance was waiting. And they took him down to Tower Forest Hospital, and me and another guy was searching with Dan Schnurrenberger, a local Truckee guy. We followed up about 15 minutes later, and the ER physician invited us into the trauma room to help with the rewarming which was super fascinating. Long story short, you know, we watched this kid. He had a core temperature of 79 Fahrenheit when he was admitted to the hospital. And he was slowly warmed up and he went kind of backwards through the whole hypothermia thing. And his temperature hit the the, uh, low 90s. He started shivering, you know, kind of backwards from the process. And he spent one night in the hospital, was discharged the next day. No frostbite, no organ damage. (laughs) Uh, He walked away. Yeah, pretty amazing. That is yeah. the best story that the kid had rhyme ice on his body. Not enough, yeah. to, literally yeah. flo- frozen just to the surface. And if people yeah. don't know, we get ridiculously windy, scary storms in the Sierra on the Sierra crest because the 6,000 mile wide body of water called the Pacific Ocean creates these gnarly storms. And the first thing they hit is the Sierra. Um, and then to, to reference again, you said 79 degrees was his body temperature Fahrenheit and, and the normal body temperature for a human is somewhere around 96.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So that is insane that this guy was 20 degrees below what he should be. And he was fine. How old was he? He was a, uh, he was 17 year old guy when he eventually gained consciousness and we sat and talked with him for a while. Of course he was in a daze. He had no idea where he was, what had happened. Gosh. Uh, minimal recollection of the events that led up. Yeah. Pretty, a pretty crazy story. Whoa. I am grinning ear to ear. I did not think the story was going to go that way. I was like, first I was like, God, Randall, why are you telling us this gruesome story? Jesus. But that, uh, that's a fantastic story. Wow. Like I'm, I'm lit up. I'm smiling ear to ear right now. What a great story. How long ago was that? Late nineties. Late nineties. Okay. Well, yeah. 
Let's talk about you being a snow scientist, which you call yourself a snow hydrologist. Uh, you work at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab, and you worked there from, for 24 years, from 1996 to 2019, which is amazing. And you were, the, you were the lead of that program there. And just and that's on Donner Summit in California. And so for our listeners who don't know where that is, it's in the northern Sierra Nevada. It's about a 7,000-foot mountain pass that goes over the mountains just north of Lake Tahoe, California. And it really sees the brunt of these Pacific storms. And it's, I think it's one of the snow places in the U.S. And so my first question to kind of get it going is, how far back does reliable snow data uh, on Donner Summit go? Uh, the Snow Lab was built in 1946. So there's data for the Snow Lab from 46 on. Um, before 46, there's reliable snow data from 1871. Because Whoa. of the guys that punched through the railroad in the late mid-1860s, um, once that construction was done, there's been a year-round human presence on Donner Summit ever since. So there are snow records from 1871 from the Norden train sheds, which are just up the street from the Snow Lab. Snow Lab is just down the street from Sugar Bowl for your listeners who, uh, who have skied Sugar Bowl. So yeah, it's, a, it's by far the, the longest uh, weather record from that kind of environment in the U.S., are those numbers between 1871 and 1946 reliable, or does it get more reliable after 46? Well, I like to think it gets more reliable after 46 because, okay. you know, the Snow Lab was established as a scientific institution. And, of course, our ability to measure this stuff has gotten better over the years. And, yeah, I imagine to some degree the measurements from the early days are anecdotal. But there were some pretty uh, rigorous uh, records kept back then. So we have reasonable level of confidence that they're legitimate. And that's impressive. I mean, to have 150 years of snow data from one location is spectacular. Did, did it used to snow more than it does now, as the old timers say, uh, according, to the <laughs> according to the data? Those are really simple questions with kind of involved uh, answers. Um, but the short answer is yes, it, it probably snowed more in the old days. Our precipitation uh, on Donner Summit has been really steady for at least 70 years. I mean, of course, every year is different, but you know the, the statistical averages have not changed that much. But we are seeing a higher percentage of that precipitation fall as rain uh, ah. versus snow every year. That's the, that's the big change. So some winters have a lot of very cold powdery storms, others not so much. They're all different can be tricky to compare one to the next. But when you get a long data set, um, like the one on Dunner Summit, you start to get an idea of uh, changes that happen over time. So that's one of the biggest things we've seen on Dunner Summit is the increase in, in uh, percentage of rain over the seasons. And if we extrapolate that increase in rain, or the R word, if you will, for skiers and snowboarders, are you seeing less freeze days and, le and higher snow levels along with that? Donner Summit is not the only place that has seen this, you know, signals of a warming climate. These are coming from all corners of the globe. In a snow environment, uh, of course, it's, it's pretty straightforward if, to understand if your climate is getting warmer, you're going to see more days with temperatures that will not sustain you know, frozen precipitation. Um, so we've definitely seen an increase in the nighttime lows on Donner Summit. You know, we have had some very warm events. And uh, I would say that the rainstorms that hit the Sierra Crest are by far the biggest storms that hit 
the mountain range throughout any given year. They tend to carry the highest water equivalents. They tend to have very, very high winds. They tend to have very, very high precipitation intensities. So the big rainstorms can be uh, monster uh, precip events. I've seen some of those in person. It's, it's incredible. Is there a time period when you saw this change when you can see, okay, now I'm seeing more rain. Now we're seeing higher snow levels. Now we're seeing less freeze days. Was there sort of a, is there a time period that that begins? Well, one thing the Snow Lab initiated in the 1970s is a very uh, detailed record of partitioning the precipitation type. You know, how many hours a day is it raining versus snowing when it is precipitating? So we have very good records from then on for the past uh, 50 years or so. Before then, uh, the big rainstorms stand out, but we don't have a tight percentage of uh, what part of that particular storm may have fallen as rain versus snow. Sometimes 80% of the event fell as rain, sometimes 100%, et cetera. And there are several instruments and several instruments being developed to partition those, but it's still a very difficult thing to measure remotely. To answer your question, maybe more directly, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, it averaged more than 15% of the annual precipitation on Donner Summit fell as rain, 85 as snow. And today, it's more like 25 to 30%. So along those lines, in 2007, I interviewed you, and you mentioned that precipitation in Tahoe was shifting later in the season. Has that trend continued? Yes, it has. Uh, as I stated earlier, our, our total precipitation on Donner Summit really hasn't changed that much, uh, but the timing of that has changed, and it is tending more towards the spring, uh, less toward the fall. Of course, in our Mediterranean climate, all the precipitation, for the most part, every year falls you know, November through May, um, but that shift has moved more towards the, uh, the spring months. Last year was a good example. You know, we, we had an okay start to the ski season, um, a big gap in the middle where February, I think we measured something like three centimeters of snowfall for the whole month. And then, you know, uh, our most powerful storms came at the very tail end. So yeah, we're seeing uh, more precip at the end of March, April, sometimes May, less in November and December. And that's what's happening this year too. So we're having a very dry November, December, and we always in Tahoe as skiers and snowboarders are always crossing our fingers for Miracle March, which seems to happen almost every year because <laughs> yeah. what you're right, what you're talking about happens all the time. You know, March saves us. We get you know hundreds of inches of snow in March and April, um, and we're kind of you know quite often of late at least we're we're waiting and waiting for something to happen. Maybe and it's hard to put this all in a nutshell, but uh, you're seeing trends on Donner Summit. Um, it, what, what other trends are you seeing? So you're seeing it, it's coming a little bit later. It's a bit warmer. Uh, we're seeing more rain. Any other trends that you've been seeing up there? Well, um, it's not so much a trend, but what we've observed certainly in the past 15 years is we're seeing all these extremes. You know, the, the weather station at the snow lab now has been in existence since 46. And so you'd think as the years march by, you kind of, you know, you see some dry years, you see some wet years, you see cold years, warm. Uh, so the, the probability of seeing something that you haven't seen before should decrease through time. But in fact, we've seen the wettest year on record in the past couple of years. We've seen the driest year on record in the past couple of years. We've seen the highest precip, highest snowfall intensity ever measured just two years ago. Whoa. We've seen the highest nighttime temperature measured just a couple of years ago. I think that 
what's happening is the the variability in what the climate is going to produce year after year is just getting bigger and bigger off the charts. So we may have some quote unquote average years, but we're probably going to continue to see years of the extreme. We're going to see very dry years or very, very wet years. And as the climate, if the climate continues to change, we're probably going to continue to see these extremes on either end of wet, dry, warm, cold. And I think you're referring to, you know, alluding to that climate change very well may have a big part in this, and uh, which a lot of people will call it instead of, you know, global climate change or, or you know, global warming, they'll say global weirding. And uh, I think that is very likely something that we're seeing in Lake Tahoe as well. You mentioned snowfall intensity being the highest you'd ever recorded recently. What was that? It was an interesting event. You know, the uh, weather forecast for that particular day was something like 10 centimeters of new snow on Donner Summit. And we were skiing very early that morning and it started snowing about 7.30. And for the next three hours, it put down uh, 53 centimeters of snowfall. And I remember looking at my partner at about nine o'clock and there was just like this huge stack of snow on his parka hood. And I was like, wow, you know, it is really snowing hard out here this morning. <laughs> so, you know, we ended up getting, I think, 53 centimeters of snow in three hours, which averages something like 18 plus centimeters per hour, which is, uh, according to our records, the highest snowfall intensity uh, we'd had. Whoa, I, I don't remember hearing that. That's like eight inches an hour, like eight inches of snow an hour for three hours. What year was that? It was February 2018. And um, I'm going to say February, either 23rd or 26th. Uh, It was interesting because it hadn't snowed for a while. And this big storm was forecast to hit March 1st. And all eyes, all forecaster eyes was on this big storm coming off the Pacific that was going to hit this year. And then eventually did and and was, in fact, a big storm. You know, this Pineapple Express, as we used to call them. Um, And, of course, this little... uh, you know, Tuesday or whatever day it was where just a few inches of snow were forecast for Donner Summit uh, wasn't really, you know, in the, in the gun sights of anybody. And I talked to a few ski patrolmen at Alpine Meadows afterwards, and they experienced the same thing at Alpine, you know? Um, So it was one of those unusual events. Um, But when those happen, you know, they're, they're more than anecdotal. They, they kind of redefine what your climate is capable of producing, right? Like how hot can it get? How dry can it get? How wet can it get? How hard can it actually snow? And so whenever we see records broken, they're significant that way because now it sets those boundaries uh, at a new new position. I mean, that is phenomenal. My math was wrong. I just did the math. 6.7 inches of snow per hour for three hours. That is mind boggling. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it kind of leads to some of the old historic numbers. You know, I think Squaw Valley reported 811 inches of snow in the big winter in 2010, 2011. So my question on that is, is Donner Summit one of the snowiest places on earth that we know of? Yeah, it certainly is. Um, of course, there's a lot of areas that are snowier, but no one lives there. So no one that's kind of an important footnote is, you know, Donner Summit has a year-round population. You know, there's there's infrastructure there. There's seven ski areas and, you know, X um, hundreds or thousands of people that live there. Uh, you know, Paradise Ranger Station on Mount Rainier is a very, very snowy spot, but it's, you know, not necessarily a town 
Kirkwood, the Kirkwood latitudes of the Sierra are probably the snowiest part of the Sierra Nevada. And as Kirkwood has matured from more than a ski area to a bit of a community, you know, um, it's, it's probably uh, snowier than Donner Summit. Um, that's just kind of anecdotal. Um, but yeah, Donner Summit certainly is impressive uh, with uh, the snowfall that can be produced there. I love it. I mean, we always talk about when you drive over Donner Summit, sometimes people are going in and out of their house on the second floor balcony. So yeah. I, that happened to me one year in college. That was pretty fun. Uh, you know, something we talked about earlier was many old timers in Lake Tahoe say things like, there used to always be snow in Tahoe by Thanksgiving every year. And you, you kind of told me that that's kind of bullshit according to the data. Uh, you know, <laughs> what's your perspective on this, on talk like that? Yeah, I, I, I've always heard that too, you know, um, especially the years where Thanksgiving rolls around and there's little, if any, snow. And you always hear that, oh, we always used to be skiing by Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I remember hearing that a long time ago, even when I was a teenager. And when I started working at the snow lab, you know, I started to look at the records of how much snow we had on the ground and all these uh, every Thanksgiving, right? And, and certainly that statement does not hold true. Uh, it's very rare that there's skiable snow uh, on Thanksgiving. And skiable snow, you know, is a bit of an open-ended thing. But I think our our average snow depth at the snow lab on Thanksgiving is something like six inches. And there are <laughs> about 20% of the years of the Thanksgivings had zero snow. Um, and of course, this does not... 20%. Right. This does not count snow baking, you know, and as uh, the seasons have gone by, the decades have gone by, these ski areas have certainly become a lot more sophisticated in grooming their runs, you know, um, mowing them really flat in the summer and, and uh, a lot of sophisticated snow making. But natural snow cover in the Sierra, you know, skiable snow cover is relatively rare by, by Thanksgiving. I love that. I want to drive that home because I feel like that's such a dispelled rumor now, such a myth. So, uh, you know, according to the science, at almost exactly 6,900 feet above sea level on Donner Summit in Lake Tahoe, we average six inches of snow on Thanksgiving. This year was a, <laughs> was a pretty good example of that, right? We had a little more than that, and the ski areas have been operating. But, you know, skiing in the backcountry around here continues to be pretty rough. Um, and, you know, Donner Summit has... 40 to 60 centimeters of snow cover. It's a pretty rocky area. Generally, a lot of the environment up there is rocky. Donner Summit's not always the best place to ski early season. And, you know, uh, you certainly can't ski anywhere you want yet. There's just not enough snow. And on that note, not enough snow. Let's talk about climate change, because I feel like you're someone who's very educated in this realm. And because climate change is beginning to change snow sports, it's, it's, we're having fewer freeze days, warmer temperatures, shorter winters. A lot of things that you just talked about, you actually have seen the data to back this up. You being a student of climate change for the past 24 years, more potentially, you've looked at more climate data than just about anybody. Uh, what evidence of climate change have you seen in your lifetime, both personally and on a data level? Well, some of the things I've already spoken of, you know, that we are seeing more rain higher up in the mountains, that we're seeing, you know, uh, warming temperatures. The thing about climate and weather data, you know, when we, when we apply some statistics and sometimes some very sophisticated statistics is they give you a lot of authority on speaking about what has happened in the past, but they don't always necessarily point to what is going to happen in the future. And of course, that is a real big challenge. You know, does the future mimic 
the past? Does the future uh, continue with these trends? Are the trends going to accelerate? Are they going to change at a different rate? These are all things that really nobody knows. But when you look at the physics of the atmosphere and uh, how water acts in the atmosphere, you know, we, we start to make some assumptions. And based on the things that we know, the best models suggest that this is going to uh, continue in the future, and it may also accelerate. Um, at what rate? Again, right. uh, we're not sure of. A lot of the early climate models that were coming out, you know, in the early '90s, were suggesting, you know, changes um, that significant changes that were going to happen in 2030, 2040, and a lot of those things. I think some observations in the Alps, some things in South America. Have uh, have happened at a much higher rate, and you know, uh, faster than they thought it would happen. Yes, faster. Uh, So disappearing of ice fields, um, stuff like that. And so, you know, snowmelt in very big, massive ice fields has a certain amount of kind of thermal inertia behind it. Takes a lot to start it. uh, Also, takes a lot to slow it down and stop it. So, you know, we don't know. I certainly don't know exactly what's going to occur in the future. But one would think that with the data and the information that we have from the past that um, these trends are, are going to continue. Right. So, yeah, these trends have already started. You're already seeing them. What we talked about uh, earlier about you know, more rain, you know, less freeze days and higher snow levels specific to Lake Tahoe. But that's one thing I just want to hit really quick. I've read something like there could be 50 less freeze days per year in Lake Tahoe. Is that something that you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, that's that's pretty significant. You know, when you look at our our core winter season is is made up of of 120 days, right? Of of four months. Um, but there have been other research out there that already have suggested that the average snow line in the Sierra, the elevation at which above is snow and below is rain during any storm, has risen close to a thousand feet in the past decades. No. Um, and that's a lot. You know, mountain wow. ranges tend to be kind of triangular in shape. So as we go up in elevation, the amount of terrain that's above us uh, decreases dramatically. Um, So the amount of snow-covered area changes a lot. So we not only could have less snow, but we could have a lot less snow on the ground, uh, which affects the whole way that, you know, California gets its water. And of course, pretty much everything in the ecosystem is affected by that as well. Well, that's devastating to think that there could be somewhere around 50 less freeze days per year, uh, you know, in in the mountains, let's say Lake Tahoe area, and then potentially a thousand vertical foot rise in snow levels. I mean, that's just, that's just absolutely hurtful. Uh, What what do you think has to happen to see real progress in the fight against climate change? I'm certainly not an authority on that. It has to be kind of on a a, a global thing, right? A a global scale. Um, Yes. Of course, it's it's great that uh, people on you know the neighborhood scale, your household scale, make these changes. But uh, these things have to be global, you know, especially nations like the U.S. Um, that are rich and and produce a lot of uh, greenhouse gases that may be driving this. We not only have to re- respond, but I think we have to lead the lead the response. So, uh, you know, I would say ski as much as you can and as as high as you can, because you never know what next year is going to bring. 
sad to say, but you know, I, I'm 42 years old now and I, I kind of feel like I got it, you know, and uh, I'm definitely looking to the next generation thinking, gosh, you, you know, you, you, you folks are going to really struggle with this and you're going to have to travel like crazy to find good snow. So, uh, so thank you for all that information. And along these lines is your being an author and you've written over 50 technical papers on snow, snow hydrology, snow zone climatology, snow avalanche dynamics, snow, right? You, you know about snow. You've written scientific papers on this, so many of them. Of all those papers that you've written, which was the most interesting to you? Which was the, kind of the most shocking results? Not so much shocking. You know, these research projects happen kind of in slow motion. Um, <laughs> they tend to happen over many, many years. And it's rare that you just discover one thing one day that just rocks your world. Right. So a lot of these papers have been reporting on stuff that I've talked about, kind of the, the long-term climate record of Donner Summit and the things that we see, the characteristics of these particular storms. There are unique things that come out, um, one of which is, uh, you know, the Sierra Nevada tends to have these very, very large snowstorms. And they really carry the, the winter. They, they provide most of the snow, most of the water. Um, and might these be the and, atmospheric rivers that get so much attention? Yeah, there? certainly. You know, we used to call them Pineapple Express atmospheric rivers. These are, right. these are big, big wet storms that come off the Pacific and hit the Sierra Nevada first. And, you know, whether the Sierra gets uh, one or two storms of those characters a year could make for a, a dryish winter. If we get five, six, or seven, could be a wet. And it really depends just on storm to storm to storm. And, and the small storms actually contribute relatively little to the whole water picture. These big storms are so big. And you know, years ago, I read a paper by a guy who looked at the glaciers in the Sierra Nevada, and he came to the conclusion that the balance between these small ice fields advancing and retreating is on the order of one big Sierra snowstorm a year. Um, that's how big they are, you know, uh, or they can be. And so, give, our, give um, our listeners an idea of how much precipitation, how much snow might one of these storms drop. Yeah. So, you know, it's not atypical for these big storms on Donner Summit to drop on the order of, of two to two and a half meters of snowfall over um, a day or two. Wow. So that's six um, to eight feet for us Americans. Yeah. Listeners. And, you know, again, if you get four or six of those, um, that makes for a pretty deep snowpack. If you only get one, that might be enough to carry you just barely through the ski season, um, but ends up being a, a very dry year. And what would a wet year look like? How many of those uh, atmospheric river huge storms might the CRC in a big year? Yeah, like six. You know, uh, the big snowfall years at the Snow Lab have had anywhere from 15 to 20 meters of snowfall for the season. The Jeez. dry years have had three to five, um, something like that. Um, the biggest storm on the Snow Lab records dropped just shy of five meters of snowfall. That was a, a single event. And that's, that's 17 feet of snow in one storm. Yeah, that's, that's yeah ridiculous. it's pretty, pretty overwhelming, yeah. Jeez, unbelievable. What is the biggest snow, uh, winter on record? What are the biggest winters on record at the Snow Lab? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, everybody's always interested, certainly skiers are interested, how much snow fell, how much snow fell yesterday, how much fell last month, how much <laughs> yeah. fell for any given season. So there, there's a very big difference to how we measure snowfall and how we measure precipitation, total water equivalent. So really the test of any one year versus another is, it, is the water equivalent, the, the total precipitation. 
So when we measure precipitation, it is independent of pretty much everything. We just measure the amount whenever it occurs and total those up all through the year. When you measure snowfall, it's highly dependent on many, many things. Most importantly, how often you measure the measurement frequency. So I would say that our most requested piece of information from the snow lab is how much snow fell yesterday, last month, last year, et cetera. Right. And in a sense, it's the least meaningful because, it it, is. Um, you know, you can get one really fluffy, dry, powdery storm that puts down a meter of snow and may have less water than uh, a 30 centimeter snowfall. Um, so they have completely different impacts um, on the environment and on, I would say, our civilization as well. You know, as skiers, we like the dry snow. But I would say as a skier, I would rather see, you know, the super wet kind of gunited snow um, early in the year, right? Um, when you Definitely. Get, when you get 40 centimeters of powder snow on the rocks, um, there's not much you could do with that. But, you know, if you get 40 centimeters of wet snow and then get 40 centimeters of powder, it, it's a much more skiable environment. So those things are very different. So your question is, you know, what are the, the big years? Certainly the big snowfall years were 82, 83, 1952, um, 2011, 2017. What, what do those totals look like, if you remember? Uh, 1952, I believe, was the snowiest year on the Snow Lab record. It just over 20 meters of snowfall for the year. Well, that's, that's 787 inches of snow. <laughs> you must have a calculator right there. I Wild. do. Yeah, so the big years range from between 15 and 16 meters up to 20. Um, that's kind of the range. Wow. Um, and even even a 15 meter, that's that's 600 inches of snow. And that's a big yeah, yeah. And in, in contrast, winter 2015, which was our least snowiest year, um, it snowed 3.3 meters for that whole whole season. Whoa. Um, that was not only the least snowiest that's 100, year. That's 130 inches only for a whole which, season. Which sounds a lot like a lot, right? If you were to live in many places of the world yeah, and you got here. three meters of snowfall, you'd consider it a pretty big year. But for Donner Summit, um, it was not only the least snowiest year we'd ever recorded. It was the least snowiest by about 30%, by a huge, mm. huge margin. Wow. And tell, tell, say the year again. 2015. Yep. I yeah. remember that one. Yeah. I spent that winter in Japan. And yeah. how, what, uh, right around there, there was a drought. Uh, some of those other years around there were terrible as well, right? It was pretty much 2012 to 2016. Yeah, so we had a four-year drought. 2012 was the first dry year. 2013 was even drier. 2014 was drier yet. And wow. 2015 was even drier yet by a big margin. God, so those four years in a row, yeah. Yeah, we went to zero snow on the study site at the Snow Lab on March 12th of that year, Ooh. which is unheard of. You know, typically Ouch. we reach maximum snow depth in the Sierra about April 1st every year. So very unusual. And of that course, is... two years later was the wettest year on our records. Um, so that's a great demonstration of how the variation in our years are just all over the map these days. Absolutely. Really good you know, sign of the, of the volatility that we're seeing in the weather of late. So I derailed you on the scientific papers. So if, if you could work on any scientific study about snow, what, what would you work on? What would be your fantasy study? If you've ever looked closely at snow crystals, they are endlessly fascinating. And no matter how many years I've done it, you, you kind of can't get enough of it. You see some pretty spectacular things. The one thing we do not have a strong handle on still is how water 
moves through a snowpack. When we have liquid water in a snowpack, we refer to as free water. And that has never been successfully modeled. Um, The observations on free water movement through the snowpack reveal some pretty wild um, behavior, um, very difficult to predict and can really drive uh, how the watershed responds, especially as we're getting more and more of these rainstorms on on snowfall. And and what might be some of the the wild reactions you're seeing? Well, one thing might surprise you is how fast the rate at which it moves through the snow. So we use various dyes, both optical dyes and chemical dyes as tracers. And so you could apply some water to a piece of the snow and then wait X number of minutes and see where it goes. And it not only goes really far, like, you know, 20 feet away in 20 minutes or less, huh. it also can move upslope through capillary action. Oh, um, really? It can hit, if you, if you have dense occlusive crusts in the snowpack, it can hit those and run laterally very fast. You can have some areas of snow that are completely wetted next to areas that are completely bone dry, uh, very dry and powdery as all the water is rooted through these predetermined channels. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty unusual. And operating in these big rainstorms on Donner Summit over the years, you, you definitely see some unusual behavior in the snow um, during these big events. Blends my mind that you could pour water on snow and it could potentially move uphill and side to side, not just straight down via capillary action. So that, that is, that's transfixing. I love that. It's a very simple experiment that very few people do. And I'd recommend to anybody to try it is, you know, just take a little spray bottle from your kitchen, fill it with some cold tap water, add a drop or two of food coloring and go out and spray, you know, a square meter of the snowpack and then come back in 15 minutes and hit it with a shovel and see where it goes. And most people, you know, you're going to be surprised at, at how far and how fast uh, that water travels. Well, that's awesome. I'll challenge our listeners to try that. And I'll, I will <laughs> certainly try that. It sounds like a great video. So you are an avalanche expert. You are extremely involved in avalanche forecasting and education. You're an avalanche forecaster for Washoe County, Nevada, and you've been doing that since 1998. You're the owner and lead guide of Donner Summit Avalanche Seminars, and that's also since 1998. You are an avalanche safety and backcountry ski instructor for North American Ski Training Center and been doing that since 2005. You're a technical advisor at the Sierra Avalanche Center, doing that since 2006. And you're also, you were an avalanche safety instructor at Sierra College in Truckee, California from 2000 to 2007. So you got a lot of experience, we'll just say, in this area. So a great question, I think, is what's the best way to stay out of avalanches? Well, of course, there's a lot of things involved. One is to recognize where and when avalanches occur. And avalanches all occur in what we term avalanche terrain. And avalanche terrain is defined by a lot of things. But first and foremost, avalanche terrain is generally steep terrain. And, you know, when you look at slope angles where avalanches release, you see the number of avalanches increase a lot as these slope angles get in the 30 degree range. So on slopes, you know, lower angle than that, you're going to see less and less avalanches. So if you know nothing else about avalanche safety, but you can measure how steep any one particular slope is or any slope above your head, that can go a long way to keeping you out of avalanches. And 30 degrees really being that critical point, staying below 30 degrees really helps keep you out of most avalanche terrain. Uh, and so that, that kind of transitions my next question. What's the number one tool available to backcountry skiers and riders in avalanche terrain? 
certainly in a lot of parts of the West, the number one tool available is to log on and read the advisories from your local avalanche safety, your avalanche uh, forecast center, you know, whether it be in Salt Lake or in Jackson or in Lake Tahoe, they're all over the West and they certainly don't cover all skiable terrain in the West, uh, like Nevada, for instance, but that's probably the, the most valuable tool that any one backcountry skier can use. I agree. Yeah, definitely always check that forecast before you get out there because these people work so hard, they know so much, and they are getting you absolutely amazing high quality information. I really try to read the details that they write in the full analysis and the weather, all that stuff. It's fascinating. I have a weird technical question. I'm curious your response to. Avalanche beacons kind of piss me off sometimes. So avalanche beacons seem so ancient and, and quite frankly, shitty. Uh, it's, it's not simple to find someone who's buried and it's clear that it should be a lot easier to me. Does the technology exist to locate a buried avalanche victim more easily than the crude tools we have now? Um, do you know of anything? I've, I've heard of ground penetrating radar. What, what have you heard out there? Well, to back up, you know, the avalanche transceivers have gotten better. They've gotten better in baby steps, but they've definitely gotten better. If you think back to the transceivers we all carried in the late seventies and eighties, with the long earphones and having to, you know, go back and forth, left and right above the and you had a turn and you had to turn the dial. I had one of oh, them. yeah, constantly had to reorient these for the strongest signal. And the ones you buy off the shelf today are much more point and shoot. I.e., you know, they'll they'll give you the basic direction and distance to the buried beacon. There's still a lot of issues uh, with these beacons, but they operate much better than they ever have. And I I assume that technology is only going to get better as we move forward. As far as ground penetrating radar goes, there are some uses for that. Um, RECO uses a lot of similar technologies. Radar frequencies have a bit of an issue with, with wet snow. I'm no authority on them, but that's my understanding of when you use radar frequencies to look into the snowpack, one of the issues that always comes up and certainly one of the issues that is in the forefront here in the Sierra, because we always have a fair bit of wet snow in our snowpack. Um, not always, but it's it's pretty common, different from other mountain ranges in the world. Uh, but we, we deal with a lot of snow uh, near its melt point all year long. So I don't know of any other technologies other than having a reliable canine friend and having that ham sandwich <laughs> in your pocket. Uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's great info, you know, cause I, I'm just always curious. I went to the Squaw Valley international snow science workshop and there was some talk about ground penetrating radar and how maybe it could help find a buried human and potentially could be used to analyze the snowpack using spatial variability. But if water and wetness is a problem, then that might be more out than I realized. There have been some advances in both those. Um, using those to find your partner buried in an avalanche is certainly not practical enough because you you would not have the receiver with you. You would not have the power supply, um, et cetera. There have been some advances in a static environment of looking, using radar frequencies to look at the uh, the density profile of the snowpack. But one of the biggest issues is dealing with um, the reflectivity of the water that's in the snow with wet snow. 
Makes sense. So it is great to hear from your standpoint how avalanche beacons have progressed and have gotten a lot better. And hopefully that trend just continues. And so it just keeps making it easier and easier and easier. I, I really excited for the day when you open up your beacon and it's just a digital display that shows you where your friend is and you go and get them. So hopefully that's coming soon. Kind of thinking about avalanche beacons, it doesn't help if you have an avalanche beacon if you're skiing solo, does it? Is it okay to backcountry ski solo? This topic comes up again and again. You know, I would say yes. I mean, I ski by myself quite a bit for various reasons. And I think most people that live in the mountains do ski uh, by themselves quite a bit. Sometimes it's like, you know, you're working at your job and you've got two hours in the morning or the afternoon and it's a, a quick way to get out and get a ski and you don't necessarily have the, the time to organize a tour with other friends. I would say one, uh, when I ski by myself, I, I do wear my beacon. People have survived a long time buried in the snow. Not everyone, of course. I think that's a good habit to just always have your transceiver, whether you're skiing by yourself or not. I know for myself that when I ski by myself, I ski very differently. I'm hyper, hyper aware. Uh, I probably talk to myself quite a bit um, <laughs> and about uh, what I do, where I go, every stick that breaks in the forest, every piece of snow that's being deposited by the wind. I, I'm just on this hyper alert sensibility. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily tell people they shouldn't ski by themselves. I've always thought it's something that's born of, of a lot of experience as you're getting experience and learning uh, about the backcountry environment. It's, it's good to have some backup with friends. And once you do have some experience and some confidence, you know, maybe you can take these things a little further and baby steps and, and uh, end up skiing by yourself. But tell you the truth, I'm a great fan of it. <laughs> Well, I, and I am as well, and I agree about wearing the beacon. And I, I did want to talk to your point of you talk to yourself when you're out there. And I just read a study that says talking to yourself is the sign of an organized mind. So, <laughs> so there you go, Randall. So that's probably why you're doing it. You're organizing your brain and, and yeah. getting, you know, talking to yourself about, hey, you know, is this the right thing? What, what should I do here? But uh, I backcountry ski by myself quite a bit. And uh, yeah, always wear the beacon and, you know, let people know where you're headed. And uh, avalanche backpacks is something, avalanche airbag backpacks is, you know, something I want to talk about too today. The legendary Utah Avalanche Center director, Bruce Tremper, also the author of Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain, a great book if you haven't read it. He once said about avalanche airbag backpacks, this quote, a deployed airbag saved about half of those who would have otherwise died. And that's a powerful quote. What's your opinion on the effectiveness of avalanche airbag backpacks? Yeah. Uh, you know, they've been around for quite a while now, you know, they've been kind of out of the closet for uh, at least a decade. Wow. Uh, and a lot of people have attributed their lives being saved to flatable packs, but there's lots of caveats here. There is some new research that suggests that when you or I ski with a inflatable avalanche backpack on that we ski more aggressively, uh, yes. take more chances. Agreed. This also followed, I think, when ski helmets came, became popular in the early 90s, that the incidence of head injuries and the incidence of helmet use kind of paralleled each other. Whoa. As everybody started wearing helmets, they started skiing faster, more aggressively. I think a good rule of thumb is all this avalanche safety stuff, whether it's an airbag pack, a beacon, probe shovel, that none of that should determine how you ski or where you ski. You know, it's just a backup if all else fails. Also, I should note that there have been several people that have got avalanched, inflated their airbag backpack and have died, right? So it's not a hundred percent. 
uh, savior. But um, it's certainly a, a big advance in safety if you're skiing aggressive terrain, if you're skiing deep snow, and if you do get in trouble, it may be you know the only thing that's going to save you. Have you found that it potentially made you more aggressive? Because I know it, I've found that with myself. You know, I don't find that with my backpack, but I do find that, you know, I've played a little hockey in my life. And oh, yeah, when, nice. when I suit up for hockey, I feel like I'm a different guy. You know, I'm a pretty, <laughs> I'm a pretty passive uh, personality individual otherwise. Um, but, uh, you know. On that and, hockey suit and all of a sudden you're ready to thunder. And I'll, I'll tell you, on, on big, on big ascents in the backcountry, I tend to wear a ski helmet. Um, and whenever I ski in ski areas, I always wear a ski helmet. When I uh, ski by myself, most days in the backcountry, I don't wear a helmet. And I find that when I do wear a helmet, I, I tend to feel a little more uh, impervious to, to hazard because of that. So I think it's very common for all of us. You know, you, you put on more and more padding, more and more armor, and you feel a little more invincible. Agreed. You feel a little more badass. And yeah. uh, I, I found that with myself too. Just to, to kind of sum it all up, do you think we should all be wearing an avalanche backpack when we go out into the backcountry? Well, I'm certainly never the guy to say don't wear one. People right. on our courses ask all the time, do you recommend wearing a helmet in the backcountry? I would never be the person that says don't wear a helmet in the backcountry. But like I like I said previously, if, if you do wear a helmet or an airbag pack, it should not determine... Uh, where you ski or how you ski. Why is it important to report avalanche accidents and observations to your local avalanche center as soon as you can? So, yeah, when a skier triggers an avalanche in the backcountry, you know, that reveals something about the the snow structure, the physical structure of the snowpack. And that's something that every forecast center is is very interested in. Does the snow have the ability to produce an avalanche, either natural or skier triggered? And if a skier triggers an avalanche, the answer to that question is yes, the snowpack does. And they want to know the characteristics, you know, where was that skier? What are the characteristics of the terrain, et cetera? So it's, it's very important. It adds to the overall knowledge of the snowpack, ultimately leads to a better advisory for all of us. So, you know, there, I think there maybe used to be a little kind of shame or hesitant in reporting an avalanche if you were out there in the backcountry. Yeah, yeah. Why, why do you think people avoid reporting an uh, avalanche? Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, you know, as a goal for most of us backcountry skiing, we don't want to We don't want to be avalanche. We don't want our partners to be avalanche. So it does represent at some level, you know, some level of mistake, but a lot of skiers are operating in aggressive terrain and, uh, you know, it happens. So I, I think that culture has changed quite a bit. Um, and I don't think there's uh, as much stigma or any kind of shame anymore. And the local avalanche forecast center here, and I think many around the West are really promoting um, that, that, you know, if you're out there skiing and see an avalanche or trigger an avalanche, by all means, uh, let us know. You know, no one's going to lay blame or drag you through the mud. This is just something that we all need to know. All the backcountry skiers need to know this. So, yeah, it's very important. I agree. I, I had my first avalanche ever uh, last season in January on Mount Superior in, in Utah. And my gut reaction was don't tell anybody, you know, delete, hide the evidence. But then as I, you know, ruminated on it, by the time I got home, I realized, God, this is such good information. Let's put all of it out there. And I'm glad I did. The Utah Avalanche Center ended up using it and they put it in their workshop this year in the fall. And it's just, I think it's something that people hopefully learn from on, on the large scale of just, you know, terrain choices and all that. And on the small scale of, Hey, this is what's happening right now. 
So I yeah, think that, absolutely. That's all really great information. More and more people are getting out there. And so the more and more people are out there, the more information we could have. It'd be great to see our community come together. And, uh, and, and with, with COVID restrictions at ski resorts in place and potentially ski resorts still might shut down. We don't know yet. Um, there's going to be more people in the backcountry than ever. Uh, how do you think that's going to affect Lake Tahoe's backcountry this year? Even just the, the restrictions that are in place right now at ski resorts. Yeah, well, you know, certainly an ongoing challenge um, with backcountry skiing, and this really has nothing to do with winter or the the physical, you know, environment, the snow environment is is parking, right? There's just usually a limited spot to park cars at these popular trailheads. This only gets exaggerated when the winters are big. Um, you know, the areas where you can park cars tend to get smaller and smaller. They get more competitive. That's a, it's an ongoing issue. And, you know, there's, there's groups up here that are advocating to the various government agencies to find solutions to this. And, and I'll tell you, Miles, this is certainly in Lake Tahoe. This is not only affects the winter uh, up here, but the summer as well. You know, there's just oh, wow. um, uh, really competitive to park. You know, Donner Summit over all the years has had fewer and fewer places available to park a car to go backcountry skiing or snowshoeing or, you know, sledding, uh, whatever you want to do. Um, it's really been reduced and pinched. And so everybody ends up uh, trying to park in the same spot. And if you uh, fold in the fact that there's more of us trying to do that, yeah, it's just become more and more competitive. Absolutely. I know that my friends get me out of bed at 4 a.m. a lot of days so that we can make sure we get parking and be the you know first ones out there so there's not an issue of us getting rejected just by parking. And with coronavirus restrictions in place, that's only going to get more competitive. And did you already see that uh, in spring 2020 after all the ski resorts closed? Did you guys see an increase in backcountry use, at least anecdotally, in parking issues? Yeah, definitely. And not only did the ski areas close, um, but uh, we finally got some really big storms in mid-March and, and pretty high quality snow. So not only was the, were the ski areas closed, but suddenly there was a lot of great powder skiing in the backcountry. So yeah, it was, it was off the charts a few days, I would say. Um, so just like you, you know, the solution day to day is just to, to go earlier than everybody else. I was there and that's what we did. And, and, and it yeah. was, like you said, it was high quality of snow and a lot of yeah. it and uh, pretty great stability. Uh, there's probably going to be a lot more backcountry users this year because of coronavirus restrictions. I don't even know if probably is okay. There just are going to be. We've seen sales of backcountry ski gear and snowboard gear up somewhere around 600% in a lot of places. So if, if you met someone today who was planning on backcountry skiing or riding for the first time this season, what advice would you give that person? You know, certainly would urge them to take an avalanche safety course. I mean, avalanche safety is not the only thing you want to be hip to in the backcountry. There's a lot of things. And, you know, you could take courses. You could take first aid courses. You could take survival courses. You could take ski courses. You could take avalanche safety courses. But ultimately, you know, you got to go out there and do it. And, you know, when you do it, you get experience, as you know. I think it's kind of like being on a ship and going to sea. You just you do not go backcountry skiing and, and get s some kind of experience. I mean, they're all very unique episodes. Like you can ski lifts for several days and have a jolly old time. Uh, but, you know, one day backcountry skiing, you're probably going to run up against something that's unexpected, especially if you're new to the sport. 
whether uh, the snow conditions are better than you expected or worse than you expected, or it's a lot harder than you expected to climb a couple thousand feet up a hill, or how do these skins work in the wind and all this stuff. I have to ski with a 25 pound pack on, which is new to people. I mean, it's just a whole bunch of stuff, right? A lot. You know, only by ultimately doing that do you learn it. But yeah, I would say, you know, to, uh, to be safe and do it smart, go with a partner, um, tell someone reliable where you're going, learn navigation and route finding skills, learn snow safety skills, learn first aid skills and, uh, and have at it. Great advice. And yeah, just on that note, I, I, I agree. Backcountry skiing is crazy. I think I counted one time all the individual things in my backpack and that on my body, I think it was about a hundred things. Uh, it's a ridiculous <laughs> yeah. sport. That's why I love surfing. It's like, Oh, what do I need? My surfboard. And can we go now? You know, I need one thing. I could, you could go surfing naked, you know, but God, skiing is it's ridiculous. It's, it's definitely yeah. daunting for people getting into it. Yeah. Very equipment intensive. Oh I know, you know, the price of lift tickets have skyrocketed. So I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, well, I'll save a lot of money backcountry skiing, but you need, <laughs> you need a lot of stuff. All of a sudden you're looking at, you know, your bank account going, oh, I'm completely broke. Maybe, maybe I should have gone on a ski resort. That would have been a better plan uh, financially. So uh, one thing that's interesting right now, across the West, we ha- it hasn't really snowed for a month, right? The, you know, right we're having this interview right now in, in December 10th. Hasn't snowed in about a month. Uh, snowpacks are getting old and crusty. There might be dangerous layers forming. In Colorado, in this scenario, this could be a, a layer that causes avalanches the entire season, you know, all the way until May. Does right. Lake Tahoe see that? So can early season snow cause dangerous weak layers in Lake Tahoe like it does in Colorado? It can. Uh, the climate in Colorado tends to support those easier than it does here. Um, but one uh, effect of having these dry starts to the year is we typically get some kind of snow like we already have. We had kind of uh, these two snowfall events that put, you know, roughly a half meter snow in the high country around. And then it's clear for, you know, weeks on end. And when it's clear this time of year, you know, the sun's very low. These are very short days especially the snow that sits on north-facing shaded terrain. Through the uh, physical processes that act on shallow snowpacks and cold environments, they, they tend to grow um, very structurally weak crystals, crystals and grains that do not bond to each other. So um, if that happens, and it is definitely happening here to some degree, and then it starts snowing again and we get you know a bunch of snow on top of it, it can be uh, potential for for a weak layer. Now, a very cold environment, colder environment, like what you'd find in the Rockies, it's easier to uh, produce those weak snow grains and sustain them. Um, And another thing that has to occur is you have to be able to cover up the roughness of the terrain with these snow grains. If, If there's a bunch of rocks and trees stepping through them, that weak snow cover is not continuous across the terrain, it's less apt to uh, produce avalanches. So we see this here a lot of years and uh, most years we do not see avalanches on these weak layers just above the ground. That doesn't always ring true. We have had some, some avalanche cycles where that occurs, but those are the requirements we need. We need shallow snowpacks early in the season for them to weaken and they those shallow snowpacks have to be somewhat continuous across the terrain. And then if they're too weak to support the overlying snow when we get subsequent snowstorms, we could have deep avalanches. Well, that's great news. So um, unlike Colorado, Tahoe is able to heal that snowpack more efficiently and, and more rapidly. 
Um, what do you think is the biggest lesson you've ever learned about avalanches and avalanche terrain? Well, you know, certainly don't underestimate snow. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of my career being a deliberate observer of snow, and I still see things that I've never seen before. Every winter is so unique, um, so different. It's not only just the amount of snow you get on any one year, it's, you know, it, it's when it occurs, it's how it occurs, it's where it occurs. Every year is unique. Um, that's one take home message from my, my whole life as a skier is that no two years are even remotely alike when you start to look close. So I never underestimate it. And, you know, I've seen some unusual avalanches in the spring when, you know, skiing around here, everybody thinks all the snow is pretty solid and the weaknesses are really driven to the, to the top of the snow on a daily basis. But, um, we have had a few years where we've had some deep releases in the spring and that gives me pause, you know, and it tells me that, you know, I should not let my guard down. And uh, no matter how strong you think the snow is, you should always ski in a relatively defensive posture, you know, to minimize your exposure to the most dangerous areas, um, you and your partners. Um, there's no reason to linger in those areas. So, uh, you know, those are kind of ongoing things for me um, that I think about a lot. And uh, I heard Jeremy Jones say years ago on one of his talks that when he's on something steep, you know, he always asks himself, where am I going to go if this avalanche is right now? And, and Great I question. really like that. Yeah. I think about that all the time. You know, when you're on a steep snowfield, if, if I was surprised at this avalanche right now, where would I go? You know, so I never want to let my guard down that way. Always, always be thinking kind of defensively and uh, minimizing my exposure as much as I can. Keeping your guard up, staying diligent, and thinking about where you're going to go if the avalanche does go, that's great advice. And that's something we've talked about on this podcast a lot, is if you're above a train trap or trees or something, think about that. Maybe it's not worth it. If you do have a big, smooth run out, that's, a, that's safer. It's never safe, but that's safer. Definitely. I love, I love to ask people why they live where they live. Why do you live in Lake Tahoe? Uh, how has Tahoe developed you as a person? Why do you choose to live in Lake Tahoe? You know, when I moved here, I, I moved here really specifically because I wanted to be a skier and uh, certainly <laughs> nice. one, of the, one of the ski beccas. And, you know, I, I didn't anticipate the community at the time, but it's, it's uh, a big thing that's really brought value to me living here beyond skiing. It's just the people and the friends I've met. And of course, a lot of those friends are skiing, are skiers, and it's something you can share. And you know, it can be uh, a difficult place to live in the winter in these really big years. Everybody has their own battles with the snow and living in these snowy environments. And it helps, again, to have that community to share that, you know, you're not alone with these battles. Right. Um, and, of course, it's, it's a physically beautiful place. And, uh, you know, the, the lake itself has offered a lot of great opportunities for exploration and adventure. And uh, it's been a great place to, to ski out your back door and a great place to launch, you know, skiing other places far and wide. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so my last question is just basically the coronavirus is making this a crazy season, right? We all aren't sure what to expect. It's challenging, but there are silver linings that I've, I've found a lot of great silver linings. What do you think will be the silver lining of this ski season? <laughs> Hard to say. Um, you know, what I found at the end of last ski season is, you know, when we had that kind of lockdown, I, I saw Lake Tahoe for several weeks being as quiet as I ever remember it. That was a bit of a silver lining. You know, the spring is typically one of the, 
the remaining quiet times up here once the ski area is shut down and before, you know, kind of uh, summer sports and boating season and not. And it's always been one of my favorite times of year because, uh, you know, you can ski these great spring snow fields in the morning and, and come down below the snow lines and do this other stuff outside of the snow environment. You know, I think probably the silver lining that'll come out of it is um, that we maybe will have a little quieter than average year. I don't know if that's going to play out in the backcountry. We'll have to see. But, uh, you know, I think all in all, the the positives from this coronavirus thing are, are pretty minimal. And so, you know, hopefully everybody stays safe and uh, we'll look back on this one day as, as this uh, kind of um, weird year where we, we learned a lot. I agree. I really do hope that's true. And I, I hope we do all take a positive mindset and try to learn as much as we can. And uh, I do love that in the spring in Tahoe, you can ski in the morning and water ski in the afternoon in the same square mile. So that's, that's all I've got for you, Randall. This has been fantastic. Do you have any other thoughts or ideas you'd like to share at the end of the show here? Uh, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Miles, I, I hope this, uh, this works out for you. Definitely worked out for me today. So this is fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Have a great day. And I hope we get to ski together again soon. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Miles. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Snowbrains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. This episode was edited by Robert Wilkinson. The music was done by Chad Crouch. I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.